All right. Uh, welcome to Chi Alpha Campus Ministries. I'm James Boley. My wife and I are the campus pastors of SEMO Chi Alpha. We're the co-directors, whatever you want to call us. Um, say hi, Kim. Hey. Hi. So, uh, long story short, I, I want to kind of jump into some of the stuff I'm talking about, and I'm struggling. I haven't used paper in years, and there it is. There we go. We're getting there. Slow. I'm so slow. Dude, I've been dragging today. We were talking about this earlier that it's a nap kind of day, and... Uh, I have not been moving quickly. Man, this is fighting me. Don't ever do that with the mic. Bad, James. Don't do that with the mic. Bad. Bad. Hey, uh, let's go ahead and hear our theme verse. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, For we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only our gospel of God, but our lives as well. 1 Thessalonians 2.8. So, hey, here's the deal. I'm going to share a little bit of life with you. Uh, Am I hot? Is this, am I yelling at you? I feel like I'm yelling. People are nodding their heads. You'd be all right? All right, all right. Uh, Apparently, I'm not as hot as I think I am. Ha, 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 ha. This, this is the no sleep that I've been doing lately. All right, so uh, back in college, all right, uh, I had this problem. Let me share some life with you. You see, hello, my name is James, and I am a slob, all right? Uh, my wife laughs because it was very true. It was very true. Uh, there was this whole uh, sequence of events. My freshman year was okay because I had a roommate, and he was like, your slop cannot enter across this imaginary line of the room and he threatened to get some masking tape out and actually mark off the room so my slop as he called it would not enter into his his area uh so we 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 clearly defined that there is a line in the tiles and i will make sure my stuff does not cross that line all right and for the most part i was okay right because first time i'm living on my own i'm at college and then I became an RA, and a lot of you guys go, ooh. Uh, became an RA, and, and RAs sometimes, for me at least, at, at my college, we had the blessing of having our own room. And it was not a blessing. It was bad. I was bad. People did not come in my room because it was pretty awful. Um, but then I quit being an RA because it was a lot of work. And it was hurting my grades. And I moved into an apartment with two of my best friends. And in moving into this apartment, as I moved in, my friends knew me. And they're like, hey, James, since you're going to be moving in last, we're just going to go ahead and take the first two rooms, and you're going to get the room that's left over. And I'm like, yeah, that seems about right. And so I walk up the hall, and I turn, and I look to see what the room is. And it's like Harry Potter's closet. Like, I am not going to lie. It was itty-bitty. I mean, you're talking like, yeah, yeah, like, you're talking like this area, right? Like, back to the wall, 
it could fit a twin size bed and a desk. And that was it. There was like no drawer space. Like I had a closet, but the closet did not have a flat bottom because the stairs went up underneath my room. And so the closet had a diagonal bottom on it. So you couldn't put stuff on it, right? And so obviously I'm an art major. What do I do? I found a piece of board hanging out someplace and I like wedged it in there. So it was like a diagonal and then there was a flat spot, all right? So smart, smart. That's when I first was like, ooh, I could do woodworking. I do not do woodworking. It is bad. So anyway, the reason that they gave me the smallest room, and they straight up said this. This was not hidden at all. The reason they gave me the smallest room is they're like, we know that you're going to trash it. And so why give you a big room when we can just give you the small room and you can trash that room and just have to deal with it? And I'm like, I mean, your logic is not totally wrong, but uh, I think we should have at least drawn for the rooms or something like that, but, uh, or at least prorated the, the rent, which we did not do. Uh, but anyway, I had a really jacked up room. And in fact, I would say outside of my Texan roommate, the only other person that saw that room was Kim. And that was because she and Danny like tried to push the door open to stick their head inside to see what it looked like and yeah my wife was a little nosy back in the day you know it it has changed but uh it a little bit a little bit a little bit but yeah so anyway the the whole ordeal with this room what it caused is it caused me to never have anybody that entered into that space of my life, right? No one entered into my room. I didn't want people in my room because I was embarrassed by it. But I also was not so embarrassed that I was going to fix it. Also, I was just lazy and I didn't want to fix it because it was going to be a lot of work, right? Uh, meanwhile, I, I'm going to be honest with you. This, this obviously... It applies to several of us in this room that not necessarily do you have your room is a mess, but some of you have drawers, a drawer that you do not let people look into because it is a mess. Or you have a closet that you do not let people look in because it's a mess. Or worse, Jake's going to feel this one, you have a car that you will not let people ride in because they can't. Every seat is filled with stuff. And the trunk, you open it and it spills out, right? Like, it, it hurts me. It does. I'm, I have a messy car, but that, that level of mess hurts me, right? How many of us have situations like that in our lives where we, we know what we're talking about? I, I have some stuff I do not want people to see. It's a little messy. Uh, yeah. It's not just our stuff or our space. It's our lives, too. All of us have attitudes. We all have habits. Uh, we all have uh, aspects of our life that, honestly, thoughts that we don't want people to see. We're glad people can't read minds because we don't want them to see those things, right? So as, as I want to jump into this, uh, we're... We're living through Passion Week right now, um, 
And in talking about Easter and talking about uh, the Passion of the Christ, Passion Week, the Passion of the Christ, uh, Jesus died for our sins, Passion Week, Easter, all right. Um, I, I want to kind of flip through a couple of things and, and look at, because today's Tuesday, right? And uh, I studied this. You don't need to know this. If you know this, and you're cool, all right, if you know this. If you don't know this, it's fine. It's not a big deal. Apparently, Tuesday was the day that Jesus hung out on the mountainside and he looked over Jerusalem and he basically foretold that, that the temple was going to be destroyed. Um, so kind of an interesting little, little tidbit. But Passion Week starts with a triumphant entry, right? Jesus rides into town on a donkey as a symbol of peace. Jesus is a cool guy, all right? I, I really, I'm always fascinated by how Jesus is able to ride this line of like balance, all right? You know, balanced as all things should be. Um, oh, uh, but Jesus does this awesome thing where like people will try to trap him. They'll ask him a question and he'll have this amazingly balanced answer, right? So Jesus rides in into Jerusalem, right? And people are like, oh, save us, save us, Messiah, right? Hosanna. And and he's riding in on the donkey. So pretty cool. He's coming in peaceful, right? He's like, I, I'm coming to you in peace type of thing, right? And everybody's wanting to kill him. Uh, but, but then, literally the next day, what does he do? He goes into the temple. He makes a whip out of a cord. And he chases people out of the temple because they're selling stuff. And this is not the first time he's done it. It's the second time. In fact, the first act of his ministry, his public ministry, in, in John uh, 2, John 2, 13, Jesus goes in, makes a whip of cords. He must have been really good at making whips. I, I mean, I don't, I feel like that would take a while. But he went in, and I don't know if he's just mad. He's like, making this whip, and I'm, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. I'm going to flip that table. And people are like, what is that guy doing over there? I'm making a whip. <laughs> Dude, he goes in. At the beginning of his ministry, his first thing, first public ministry, turns over the coin changers, chases people out, says, my house will be a house of prayer, right? And then, it's the funniest thing. He, it's the last thing he does in public ministry. Everything after Monday of Passion Week is private. He will go up on the mountain and he will talk to his disciples, but it's not a public ministry thing. He doesn't really do healings after that a whole lot, right? He'll heal the people they bring to him, but it's not really public. So the last little public thing he does, honestly, is violent. First thing publicly he does is violent. Second, last thing he does is violent. How many times do we talk about Jesus being violent? None, right? Every once in a while you got that one pastor that goes into the whole whip and cord things, right? So, but, but this is like the only thing that he, he does where he gets really passionate about the temple. Why? Why does he get passionate about the temple? It's supposed to be a house of worship, right? The temple, okay, now let's, let's kind of help spell this out for you, all right? I don't know how familiar you are with the temple, okay, in Jerusalem. Okay, but the temple was actually something that Solomon created, right? And King David 
back in the day was like, I want to build a temple. God's like, no, you killed a lot of people. I'm not going to let you build a temple. Your son, though, he can build a temple. Solomon builds a temple. It's really pretty. It's really cool. And basically, it takes the place of the previous tabernacle. It's a tent that God had allowed his presence to dwell in. Now, the place, the tabernacle, the temple, those are not necessarily like holy places because of themselves, right? They were holy because God allowed his presence to be there, okay? This is why it was holy. God basically says, as long as you live by the standards I'm asking you to, as long as you live by these rules and, and honestly this, this obedience, right, I will let my presence live in this place, and it will, be, it will be a representation or a symbol of my presence among you and my protection over you, right? Uh, the temple was also the place where the daily sacrifices were made for sin. There was always a daily sacrifice that was made for sin because people sin every day, right? Okay, so every day you had to have a sacrifice for sin. But then every year there was this special atonement, right? Atonement could be at one minute, right? It means to be reconciled to God. So it was like, you know how you have a, a lease in your apartment, right? And every year if you have an apartment, you have to kind of renew that lease to say, yeah, we're going we're gonna to do this, this agreement again, all right? It's a contract, right? So God basically had this agreement with the people of Israel where every year he would say, you're going to do the Day of Atonement, they will come, Day of Atonement done, we killed the lamb, sprinkled on the altar in the Holy of Holies, and went, went behind the curtain, because we can't ever go behind the curtain, right? We went behind the curtain one time, a special guy did. And basically what it did is it renewed the contract that God was like, if you serve me, I will be your God. And you will be my people, and I will protect you, and I will let my presence be with you if you serve me, right? Now, this service wasn't so much about like, hey, I need you to do a couple of things, right? This, this whole idea of asking a people to be holy, it really wasn't simply like, all right, you're going to follow the rules, and you're going to be a good little boy, and then, then I'll be your God, right? It wasn't that. This idea of holiness was more about devotion. It was more about, are you going to be faithful? Are you going to love me? Right? It was more like, I am devoted to my wife. I am solely the husband of my wife. I do not belong to anyone else. I am not going to go looking around at anybody else. I'm not going to go talking to anybody else in an inappropriate way. This is the concept of holiness. This is what God was asking of his people. That you are going to be devoted to me. And I have things I want you to do to protect you, but also to protect the people around you because I love the people around you, right? And so he had a standard of living, kind of like my standard of living is I don't go talking to random women in random places, right? It looks weird, okay? I feel weird enough when I'm standing on campus and I'm talking to like, like Haley privately or something like that, right? Because people walk by and they're like, oh, what are they doing? Like, I'm talking to my staff girl, right? Like, all right, anyway, moving on. 
Jesus, in this moment, he's, he's angry that the holiness of the temple has not been taken care of, right? That people, namely the Israelites, the people that were supposed to be God's people devoted to him, they kept going out on God. They kept grabbing these other idols and these other gods, and they would bring them in, and sometimes they would bring them into the temple. And they would desecrate the temple. And eventually what happens is God's like, I'm done with it. Th this temple that is supposed to be a special place is no longer special. You've, you've messed around in it so many times. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step away. And all of a sudden what happens is Babylon comes in, they destroy it. Okay? Israel goes into to exile. I'm giving you a whole rundown here. And then what happens, believe it or not, the people come back to God, they rebuild the temple, and it's cool again, right? Kind of. They kind of still screw up again. But, but then you got this guy named Herod. Has anybody ever heard of Herod? Yeah, he's the guy that kind of chased Jesus when he was a little baby. He tried to kill him, okay? So Herod actually uh, is trying to, to gain favor with the Jews. And he's like, you know what I need to do? There's this really crappy temple over here that they rebuilt like 500 years ago. I need to rebuild this thing. And they go and they bulldoze it. They bulldoze the second temple and Herod rebuilds. In fact, he doesn't go and rebuild. He like, he does a huge reno. He fills in three valleys to increase the footprint of what the temple used to be, right? He creates a new giant temple in its place to, to basically, he, he's in competition with, you know, you're talking about the, the temple at Ephesus, the, you know, Aphrodite's temple, Zeus's temple. He's in competition with them. So he builds this giant stone, awesome temple, but then he puts courts around it to kind of separate people, right? He doesn't want everybody close to the temple. The Jews don't want everybody close to the temple. They only want certain people in. They only want, especially, the clean men to be able to go and worship. And then the next ring out is the women. The next ring out is the foreigners, right? And what Jesus is throwing a fit at is he's actually in the Gentile ring of, of the, the temple grounds. He's in the place where all the foreigners can be, where they're excluded outside of the presence of God. And Jesus throws a fit because this is not, this is not how God asked the temple to be made. This is how man decided to make the temple. Yes, God is saying, I'm holy. And so there's separation between you and I because we sinned, right? The curtain that was in this temple that, that I talked about previously that separated the Holy of Holies, it was to separate sin, us, from the holiness of God to represent that, correct? But all these other courts, they were not prescribed, right? Now, you were supposed to be holy when you entered in, but it wasn't that you were always excluded because of who you were. So, okay, I want to take a look at, at Hebrews chapter 10. And we go into this discussion about what Jesus does throughout Holy Week, right? That Jesus came and he saw the temple. He was broken heart at the state that we were in. And while he was broken hearted for us, 
He fought for us. He laid his life down for us, and he died for us to rise again so the people would know that he is God. Hebrews 10.11 says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hebrews 10, 11, 11 through 14. For by one sacrifice, he made perfect forever. Relationship is restored. Suddenly, the curtain comes down. No longer do we have to hope year after year after year that we're going to renew the contract. For one time, we say, Jesus, I am devoted to you. And we get to live in that experience, that relationship with him. But then again, he says, he makes perfect forever those who are being made holy. Just because we made that decision does not mean we get a get-out-of-jail-free card. There's still a lot of living to do and a lot of changing that we have to do in our hearts. We have to grow in our obedience. We have to grow in our love for Him. I want to move on to Hebrews 10, uh, 19 through 27. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have the confidence to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open through us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and that he is Jesus. That Jesus, through his sacrifice, tears down the curtain. He, he opens up a way for us to enter into the presence of God, right? It's no longer about the temple. The temple no longer signifies or symbolizes the presence of God. What is the presence of God now? Anybody know? What? I heard a spirit. Yes. The presence of God is the Holy Spirit who lives inside of all believers. And this is the promise that we have been given. That the Spirit of God would come out of the Holy of Holies and dwell inside of his people. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another as all the more as we see the day approaching, the day is the day of his coming. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice is left for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. We need to grow in holiness as the temple of God. As we have pursued through here, we see over and over again this concept 
that we cannot accomplish holiness on ourselves, right? In the Old Testament, the sacrifices that were made were made because we can't do anything to fix our mistakes, right? And even at one point it says the sins that are offered that can never do anything about sin or the sacrifices that are offered to never take away sin, right? Why were they offered? They were offered in devotion. They were offered in faith that God would forgive, right? But now we have the one sacrifice that for once and forever takes away our sin. Now it doesn't it doesn't immediately mean I'm no longer ever going to struggle with anything ever again. Here's the issue. If you struggle to experience the presence of God, what is it in your life that you have not given over? And it was ironic. Emily was talking as we were going to prayer. She was talking about the throne of our lives and that God needs to be on it. Literally, that's part of the message. Who's on the throne of your life? Is it you or is it God? Is the Spirit of God dwelling on that throne of your life? As we talk about this curtain that was torn, uh, in, in Matthew 27, it describes very vividly a curtain, very tall, that was torn from the top down into, not by human hands, but by the hands of God, as he was symbolizing that the Spirit of God is no longer dwelling in the temple, that the holiness of God now wants to dwell amongst men and in people. That presence of God is something that you can experience in your life. You can have a relationship with him through that Spirit. Have you ever struggled to feel that, that presence of God or that relationship with God? If you have, I would challenge you that there is a place, there's a closet in your heart that you have not cleaned out, that you have not let him have access to. As we continue in obedience, as we continue in fellowship with the Spirit, we begin to become more like Jesus Christ. Accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior puts him back on the throne. And, it, and in fact, we say to him, have your way with us, right? At some level, what is it we are not allowing him to have his way with? When we begin to turn those things over, the sanctification process, this, this process of becoming more like him, sanctification is basically just being made more holy. It's more devoted to him, right? Sanctification is both instantaneous. It happens as soon as you say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. It is also progressive. Because as much as, as I would like to say that I let Jesus do whatever he wants, I know that I do not. And I know that you do not, okay? No one in here is perfect. We do not say yes to Jesus all the time, all right? But as you begin to say yes more and more, you progressively are becoming more and more devoted to him. We have to constantly maintain a life of obedience. 
not follow, it's not, like, like I said, it's not following the rules. But again, it's spending time with the Holy Spirit and listening to Him and saying yes to Him. We talk about this all the time when we talk about listening to God. If God has said something to you and you haven't been obedient in doing it, you should expect to not really hear anything else from God for a while. Okay? To be completely honest with you, whenever I'm talking to somebody and they're like, man, I just can't hear from God, usually the first question I ask in that moment is, what was the last thing he told you? And not every time, but very often people are like, oh, well, it was this. And I'm like, have you gone and done that yet? And often they'll be like, well, I started to, and then, you know, life got busy, and, you know, my daily devotion started to struggle. Or, you know, I tried to start forgiving this person, but then they got really annoying again. And so I, you know kind of moved on past that praying, praying for them and praying blessing over their life, you know. Typically, it's disobedience that hinders our presence with God. God cares about holiness, right? It's not just about right living. It's about actually being obedient to God. So if the Spirit of God is saying something to you and you're not following through with it, that's going to hinder your experience with him. It's going to hinder his presence living in your heart. Your temple, you, yourself, you're no longer clean. You're no longer devoted to God. And it doesn't mean you got to get saved again, okay? I want to make that clear. But it does mean that you need to do some talking to God. You probably need to do some talking to somebody else too. I... I, I am a strong believer in confession. It's a fancy Christian word we use. But honestly, just be real with somebody. You don't need to go and talk to me about your issues, right? Like, I, to be honest, I'm not a special person. I'm not going to give you a special forgiveness blessing or something like that. You need to find a friend that cares about you, and you need to talk to them about the reality of your life. There should be at least one person in every one of our lives that knows you in reality. It's like my room back in college, all right? I did have a friend that knew what my room looked like, and he did give me crap about it all the time. Now, he was, he was kind of nice about it, is that, honestly, he didn't give me crap in, like, major public settings. Like, he didn't just come up and be like, hey, slob, how you doing, you know? But at the same time, about once a month, he would be like, James, you need to vacuum your floor. Which, you know what that meant? That means I need to get the snow shovel out and I need to get all the stuff off my floor and toss it on the bed so I can vacuum the floor to get to the floor. Right? We need friends like that in our lives. That after we've been living a certain while and the clothes and the papers and the muck has built up on the floor, and you can't walk anymore, and it's like you're playing the, you know, the floor's lava, and you're jumping on your bed, and you're jumping on your chair, just trying to get across the room, right? When your heart looks like that, you need a friend that's going to be like, dude, stop jumping on your bed and clean up the floor, right? It's going to be very hard to invite people into that place of your life. It's going to be very hard to invite Jesus into that place of your life if it's not cleaned up. 
And I'm not saying you have to clean it up on your own. You need to invite Jesus in. You need to invite Jesus to help you clean it up. Confession helps us to begin breaking these traps of enemies. Here's the deal. As we struggle with certain areas of our life, if you will not talk about it, you will drown. Okay? Literally, and this is a, another horrible slob example, I would not ever have gotten out of that apartment had I not asked for help. I was the last one to move out, and my wonderful roommates that were very clean were not deep cleaners, okay? So when they moved out, I was not there. They all moved out, and I came back, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to clean this whole place by myself. And it wasn't like awful, but it was not clean. And I'm like, I have to be out tomorrow at noon. It is 8 o'clock at night. And I've got like 36 hours of work to do. Fortunately, I have a very loving mother. And she was coming the next day to help me pack some stuff away and drive it home. And when she got there at 8 o'clock in the morning, she's like, oh my. And I'm like, yes, I need help. And she came in, and I would not have gotten out on time had she not helped out. We need people like that in our lives that are going to help us to walk through some stuff. Ultimately, people are not going to give you all the answers. Jesus must. You must talk to Jesus. You must be obedient to Jesus as you're cleaning out your heart. But Satan wants to keep you in that mode of everything is fine, nothing needs to change. As long as that is what's going on, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is not going to be able to be impactful in your life. All right? If you want the Holy Spirit to be active in your life, you've got to start working on cleaning your life up. You do not have to be perfect, okay? You will never be perfect. Let me be very clear with that. But... To be completely honest with you, if there is a place in your life and you're saying, man, I do want to experience more of the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to be able to talk to my friends about this whole devotional life thing, about Chi Alpha, about how much Jesus loves them. I want to be able to encourage people that are feeling concerned or scared right now because of some of the things that are going on in our world but I don't have the courage to do that. If you want the Holy Spirit to help you in that, you got to clean some other stuff up, okay? Persistent sin in your life will always get in the way of what Jesus is wanting to do. We are supposed to allow people to experience God's Spirit through us. Just like the temple allowed people to experience the Spirit of God or the presence of God, Each one of you, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, is supposed to allow other people to experience God's presence. That was why he came. That's why in the beginning of Acts we see that the Holy Spirit comes down on the new believers. That he empowers them to witness because, again, he's the temple. You're the temple. His Spirit is supposed to be able to work through you in partnership with you. To take the natural beauty that you are, again, an object, the temple, but you by yourself, you're you're not that special unless the Spirit of God is living inside of you, and then you have been made holy. 
at what level do you need to make sure holiness is alive in your life? I'm going to start wrapping up tonight. We need, we must grow in holiness as the temple of God. And as I'm wrapping up tonight, I want to ask you a question for you to be thinking on. How is your temple dirty? What area of your temple needs to be swept clean? What area of your heart have you not allowed Jesus to have access to?